are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm co-hosting with Helen Pluckrose again. Welcome, Helen. Hello. Nice to be back again. Helen is coming to us from London, and um, I'm, I'm, as usual, I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires. And our guest this week is Nicholas Christakis. And Nicholas is a, has a background in medicine and sociology. He's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University, and he is the director of the multidisciplinary Human Nature Lab. Uh, Nick's last book, Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks, um, was a huge success. But today we're going to, going to be talking to him primarily about his new book, which is called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me, Ona and Helen. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. Nicholas, I absolutely loved this book. And as I mentioned briefly on social media, I um, am very committed to universal liberal humanism. And while I used to feel that, that, that it was the liberal part of that that was the most important, I've since come to believe that the most important element is the universal one. So that that we need to shift from a focus on what divides us and what separates and differentiates us to a focus on what unites us, the fundamental elements of our of our nature. And you talk about um, a social suite which all human beings have in common. Maybe we could start there. Um, could you could you tell our listeners about that? Yes, I mean, there's there's been a long sort of debate in the social sciences about whether there are universal qualities to human cultures uh, or not. I mean, it's very tempting when you look around the world and when anthropologists or even tourists fanned out around the world, even since Roman times, actually, there we have records of people going from one place to another and saying, you know, these people are crazy over here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, of course, when you had the formal, uh, you know, the sort of rise of uh, professional anthropology in the 19th century, people fanning out around the world and in the 20th century, um, you, it's very tempting and appealing to focus on all the manifest differences, you know, the, the smells and the, 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 the difference in attire and the different sports and the different modes of life or the different marital systems. And to be very beguiled by that into thinking that humans are really rather different uh, the world over. But I actually think that's quite a misconception. And it's a little bit like standing on a plateau at 10,000 feet and looking at two hills and saying, oh, one is 300 feet and one is 900 feet. 
and 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 focusing on the you know the geological forces that are shaping these two hills to be different heights and and losing sight of the fact that actually those are two mountains one of which is 10,300 feet and one of which is 10,900 feet and there are these much more powerful tectonic forces that are really driving uh, what's happening with these mountains and I, I think that's rather the same with human uh, societies and of course, I'm not the first one to have this concern. I mean, this also goes back 100 years, people looking for cultural universals, um, trying to understand like to what extent are there certain features in human societies that can be thought of as universal. Therefore, it is, it is sometimes left unsaid and is sometimes said, driven by our biology. Now, of course, some of them are obvious, like, you know, we have to feed ourselves. So every society is concerned with the acquisition of food, for example. Um, or every society is concerned with bodily integrity. So they all have healthcare systems or ideas about you know, illness causation and, and how to treat illnesses and so forth. And of course the details vary from society to society. So I'm part of a stream of people who have been much more interested in, in, in universals. What is universal about us? And in particular, what is universal about us that can be ascribed to our evolution, to the way natural selection has shaped us to be a species. Um, and so I, I am focused on good things, um, and I'll get to why they have to be good as well. And I'm focused on things that are universal that we express between ourselves. So, for example, I'm not so interested in, uh, let's say, a universal tendency to have superstition that is within each person. And a, and a person living alone can be superstitious. Uh, I'm interested in, in those qualities that we express between ourselves, for example, love. You, you know, we, you can love yourself, but what we really mean by love is when you love someone else. Um, and, and love is universal. The, the attachment that we feel to our sexual partners um, is seen in every society. There's one interesting exception I discuss in the book. Um, and, uh, and other qualities like that. For example, friendship. Friendship is another universal property of human social systems. It's seen throughout the world. And there have been uh, systematic studies of cultures around the world and it, the absence of friendship is extremely rare, and when it is does occur, it can be explained in certain ways. So, so I call these the social suite because they are a suite of features that are universally expressed and that shape how we humans can live together, and they are seen pretty much everywhere. And there are eight components to that, and they are, uh, first of all, the capacity for individual identity, that is to say the capacity we have to be different from one another. This is very paradoxical. Here I am claiming that to live socially, first we must be individuals, but actually this paradox is resolved when you recognize that we, um, we, we each of us uh, have uh, different faces. We've evolved to have faces that look different, which is an evolutionary luxury. And we also have the capacity to distinguish one face from another. All this brain capacity that goes into that and these, neither of these traits would have evolved or, unless they serve some purpose. And one of the purposes they serve is to communicate our individual identity, which is essential to actually living together. So you can know who's my offspring, who's my partner, who is, if it didn't matter who you mated with, then you, it wouldn't be so necessary to signal this is me, not someone else. But it does matter who you mate with. So some, some capacity to distinguish one person from another is essential. Similarly with with cooperation, it does matter who was mean to you before and who was not. So identity is seen everywhere in human societies. Love, friendship, social networks. My lab has mapped 
this mathematical structure of social networks around the world and many different cultures. They have very similar properties. Um, In-group bias, the kind of uh, preference, the sort of slight preference for our own group as compared to um, other groups. Um, a mild hierarchy or relative egalitarianism. So you, in no society is it the case that everyone is sort of treated as equal to everyone else. And similarly, our, in no society is there too much hierarchy. Um, and um, cooperation, the, the, in every society, there's variation in the amounts of cooperation, but in every society we find people cooperating with strangers, which is again, unusual in the animal kingdom. And finally, this capacity for social learning and teaching. Teaching is very rare in the animal kingdom. Uh, so animals, many, many animals learn. A little fish in the sea can will learn that if it swims up towards the light, it'll find food there. And other animals, although this is less common, learn socially by imitation. Serve another person doing something, another animal doing something, and they copy it. Um, and that's extremely efficient social learning because, for example, if if you put your hand in the fire, you get burned. You learn, don't put your hand in the fire. But I can watch you put your hand in the fire and get almost as much learning, but for none of the price. And that's very efficient. Uh, but we don't just do that. We take it to another level, which is very rare in the animal kingdom. We teach each other stuff. We set out to altruistically teach each other things. And this capacity for learning and teaching is seen universally and ultimately is at the root of our capacity for culture. So those are the eight traits, these social suite, these traits that I believe and show, I think, that are universal cross-culturally and are necessary for us to live a good life. Yeah, I, I find this um, this very interesting. I, I've, I've tended to look at this uh, through literature and, um, and the work of uh, Jonathan Gottschall. I don't know if you, if you know of him and how he has looked um, at... Um, human universals and but looking back in time rather than um, cross-culturally and and we, we find looking at Shakespeare for example you're going to find absolutely everything in there which is still um, understandable to us today so if, if we tried to look at Othello we may not condone um, honour murder and we might not condone the torture of the Argo but we still have the same complicated um, sort of emotions intuitions of sympathy and anger and will to punish <laughs> yeah i mean this is what makes the humanity so important i mean you can read the iliad and you watch hector's relationship with andromache and you find in it it's the shock of the familiar or or frankly almost any literature i mean you could read uh, you can read uh, confucius's text you could read some of the oldest texts we have uh, from sanskrit that have ever been written and in it, you find very familiar themes, dilemmas that go back thousands of years. And this then highlights, as you're arguing, using literature, our common humanity, which, of course, is the thing that Iona started with and that I also and you also strongly endorse is this notion that we are all first human beings mm -hmm. that you know have these shared qualities across time and space that, um, in principle, also can provide a foundation for liberalism, right, can provide a foundation for us to interact with each other in a kind of civilized way. 
So yeah, I'm not surprised. I don't. The name you mentioned is familiar to me, but I honestly don't recall having read that work. Uh, oh, it's it's uh, it, it really is very illuminating. It was quite life changing for me, and I I tried to bring yeah. in some evolutionary psychology in this sense into my work at postgraduate, but I was um, informed um, immediately that I must never ever do that again if I wanted to pass. So unfortunately, I. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that kind yeah. of crap. I hate yeah. that. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like fiction, reading fiction or uh, watching fiction in the form of film, TV, etc., is a kind of exercise in empathy. Um, and that is the basis of morality, that the one thing that we can, the one thing I can be sure of is that I exist I don't know about you two, you could be just figments of my imagination or this could all be a dream or we could be playing, we could be figures in some multiplayer um, video game that some alien, incredibly intelligent, hyper-intelligent alien species is playing. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you two, but I exist and I know that I can suffer. And so that that is the basis of morality, that I I assume other people can exist and they can also suffer in the same way. Um, I extrapolate from what I know that I can feel to what I imagine that others can feel. And of course, we we do this not only reasonably with other humans, but with other the, the tendency to anthropomorphize other animals and even inanimate objects seems to be really quite deeply embedded in us. And I think when you were talking about this, um, yeah, the the, the value of uh, of fiction and things like, I think this comes down to the social learning that um, Nicholas was talking about, because in this way we get to explore uh, moral and practical problems without the cost of actually going into them. That's that's something the evolutionary psychological literary theorists have argued is is the purpose of us being such a narrative-centred um, species. It is just so helpful to be able to work things out in the abstract without actually yeah, doing it and possibly dying. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's right. But I also like to second another thing that what you just said, Helen, regarding the anthropomorphizing. Honestly, I think there's an, one of the paradoxes that I explore in the book it has to do with this notion of when, when we see friendship in other animals or, or social monogamy in other animals or cooperation in other animals, like elephants, for example, um, or individual identity in other animals, which, as I mentioned earlier, is not common. But, you know, elephants, certain elephants can recognize 150 other animals uniquely. They know specifically not just, oh, there's an elephant there, nor do they have a dichotomous sense, oh, this is friend or foe. They know who it is. Uh, and there's some evidence that dolphins have names for each other, that they assign themselves names that they use throughout their lives and they address each other uh, by name. So, so these qualities that uh, some people say, oh, well, we're just anthropomorphizing, but I actually think we're not anthropomorphizing. I think it's a kind of arrogance to think that we are the only species capable of these uh, features. And if anything, the, for example, the recognition that elephants have friendship networks that are similar to our own, and they evolve those by independent and convergent evolution. That is to say, our last common ancestor with elephants was 85 million years ago. We have more in common with whales, by the way, than with elephants. So 85 million years ago, and yet, and that was like a small sort of shrew-like animal that did not live socially. So elephants and we independently come to manifest these qualities of identity, 
uh, cooperation, friendship networks, and so forth, suggests, first of all, that there might be only one way to be social if you're a mammal, which I think is a deep observation in itself. But furthermore, it suggests that if we can share the capacity with elephants, we can sh- if we can share the capacity for friendship with elephants, we can share it with each other. So the, it's one of the deep ironies that the more in common we have with animals, the more in common we have with each other. Uh, so here's another paradox that, you know, it, that in order to really understand what lies at the core of us as a species and our, our humanity, we, can, we need to look to animals to find that. And um, but I think that's true. It seems to be a recurring theme in your book that um, there are two um, there are the two contrasting extreme levels at which it is helpful to think about uh, human nature or to think about our relationships with other human beings. And those two levels are the individual on the one hand and the entire species, or perhaps even beyond the species, as you suggest, with the parallels with whales and dolphins and elephants, on the other. And that it's when we start categorizing on the group level that our vision becomes less reliable, more blurry, and that is where the problems arise. Does that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, to some sense, yes. I mean, I would say our groupiness is also part of our, of our, um, human nature. I remember having a very funny, I'm not a particularly, I would say I'm not a religious person, but I've always had a lot of amazement at people who have a kind of charisma. And I think even those of us who are not particularly religious, when we encounter someone, or at least speaking for myself, when you encounter a truly holy man, um, they have the way about them. There's something distinctive about those people. I don't know what it is. I don't know if they're born with it. Some people argue it's a kind of charisma. Some people, you know, God-given, it's a gift. Others argue it's acquired. But anyway, so I remember once as a young man, I had gone to, um, and my Greek is, is reasonably fluent, but it's not, it is fluent, my Greek, but it's not fluent enough to have like a theological conversation. And I had gone to uh, visit the, um, the holy city of Mistra which is in Southern Greece, and uh, it was the capital of Byzantium for a while when it was in Constantinople. It's, a, it's an enormous preserve. It's like the Pompeii of Byzantium. It's like this vast, huge city on a mountain with all this Byzantine architecture. And it's, it's, no one lives there anymore, but you can go and visit. And I'd gone to visit, this was like 30 years ago, and I was approaching uh, the site and a Greek Orthodox priest came out. And I instantly took a liking to him, although I usually don't feel that way about that. But this man had a kind of beatific look on his face. And I started talking to him and he said one of the most humane things, and here I am telling you this story 30 years later. He said, where, where do our emotions and even our vices come from? He said, you know, God gave us our vices. Therefore, they're normal. They're part of our nature. You know, we can't, you know. And so he had this very kind of accepting, kind of, you know, basically, you know, theological, of course, narrative. Um, but a very kind of humane acceptance of the human predicament, which just which struck me that this very traditional Greek Orthodox priest speaking to me in a kind of high Greek, very about theological topics, never nevertheless was able to make himself understood to me, and I was able to understand him. But the reason I'm telling that story is to is to get back to your question about in-group bias, which depresses me. It depresses me that we humans draw these distinctions between us and them, um, and that this is also part of the social suite. 
But it is, it is there. It is part of our nature. It's inalienable. We can't escape it. But I would like to say two things in response to what you said, two different ideas. The first idea is, is that the in-group bias, we believe, evolved as one of several mechanisms we have as a species to support cooperation. To, and it, and it, it's, it's, it's a way to reduce the sense of scale. So in other words, if you're part of a big population, instead of you having to cooperate with everyone, which as it turns out is mathematically difficult to sustain, if you evolve the capacity to draw an arbitrary distinction between us and them and only cooperate with us, it turns out its cooperation becomes possible. But that's not the only trick in our, that evolution has equipped us with to make it possible for us to cooperate in larger groups. Another trick is friendship. So the capacity for friendship also is about reducing scale. So we're in a large population, but each of us has our own specific friends, which are partially but not completely overlapping. And the rule becomes cooperate with your friends. And that rule, cooperate with your friends, now suddenly makes it possible to sustain cooperation amongst the whole group if you see what I'm saying. So, so the point is that this in-group bias, which we have, is not the only tool at our disposal to support cooperation. We can look to other aspects of our nature to achieve a kind of cooperation, which brings me to my second and final point in response to this, which is that, which you highlighted, Yona, which is that when you're struggling, as we are today around the world, with these notions of tribalism and you know, us versus them, uh, there are a couple of ways we can, again, by availing ourselves of tools that evolution has equipped us with, address this. So imagine you have a large population at the high level, let's say a whole nation, and in between you have these groups that are defined by some attribute. It could be ethnicity, it could be religion, it could be language, whatever the hell it is. And then at the lowest level, you have individuals. So one way to tackle this problem of tribalism, which is so problematic in my view, uh, even if it's a fundamental part of our nature, is, as you said, is to go up a level to the level of, of the whole a country, and for instance. And part of the reason that's possible is that we can we are equipped with this capacity to define the boundaries of us versus them. So we can specify what counts as us versus them. And at least in the United States, one of the classic arguments is, is that anyone can be an American. You just have to buy the Bill of Rights and commit to certain liberal principles. And we don't care where you're from or what your background is or your language is or what your skin color is. You are an American. And so by by stepping up a level and, and seeing ourselves as all part of, let's say, this category Americans, we can efface the tribalism. But another strategy, which we've already talked about, is you could go down a level to the individual level. And you can say, okay, I'm not going to judge people by who, which group they're a member of, let's say like a like a herd of animals might, you know, us versus them, I'm going to use my capacity for individuality to judge each person as a person, as a unique human being. And this also has been a strand in, the Amer in American history. And this is, lies at the core of Martin Luther King's famous argument that he looked forward to a time when people would judge each other, not by the color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character. So you step down a level and you can efface tribalism that way. And I, I think both of these very natural tools, all of the tools we've just discussed, should be and can be used to address some of the problems that tribalism is posing and has always posed for us, us as a species. I, I, I find this, this very interesting. I've, I've tried to look at um, how we're 
how we're working within ideas of individuality and universality as well, but on, on a more um, sort of cultural scale, but obviously it, it, it ties in. And so I, my main um, criticism of, um, of the intersectional approach has been that it explicitly criticised the idea of the individual as um, universalising a white Western male experience, and it criticises uh, universalism as perhaps we can do that one day but this isn't the time. And so Kimberly Crenshaw advocates um, seeing the difference between I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. And she puts the power on the I am black. We're not putting the I am a person first. And so I, I have often argued that I think this is where the problem is is coming from with the intersectional approach because while there can, certainly can be criticisms, very good criticisms of universal liberalism that it hasn't been as universal as it should have done should have been and it's it's mostly universalized certain experiences of of more powerful groups by trying to actually this this is an aim i i would say and coming into what you were saying with the abilities that we have got in addition to the um the traits which which cause us to have these tribal territorial problems we've i i think we need to to look at at all of these on all these levels and and work out what is what is going better it's it's an aim it's an aim to value the individual and the universal it's it's not something that we're naturally going to to do without giving it a lot of thought <laughs> well i don't know i mean um i would like to make two comments in response to what you said the first comment is that the broader comment is is that i i um well let me say first on the political front i would say that I quite realized that philosophical arguments and principles about universal rights of man, uh, you know, were not extended to everybody. And we have regularly fallen short of our ideals. Uh, and we still are falling short of our ideals. I mean, let's not forget the United States, you know, after centuries or, or decades of denouncing terrorism, uh, denouncing torture around the world, you know, actually tortured its prisoners uh, during the, uh, you know, during the after the attacks of 9-11. And, you know, I am ashamed of what my country did in that regard. And uh, we lost our way and, it, you know, lost our credibility, even though we have these appropriate commitments. And even if we're not the worst sinner by far when it comes to torture around the world. So, so I understand that. First of all, furthermore, I do understand that every century is replete with horrors. And it's not, I, not a, you know, Panglossian, you know, this is the best of all possible worlds. I recognize all of what you've said. However, what I'm interested in is not even our history, Helen, it's our prehistory. Let's not forget we had hundreds of thousands of years before the pogroms, before the Inquisition, before the Holocaust, before, you know, the, the, the colonialism, before slavery, which incidentally is an institution that's been practiced since time immemorial, actually since the agricultural revolution um, 10,000 years ago, before all of these things, we were evolving as a species and we were being shaped by natural selection to have all of these qualities. And one of them was the capacity for individuality. In other words, we are first and foremost able to form relationships with unrelated individuals. We're not ants, you know, in an ant colony where we're all clones. Each of us is different genetically than everyone else. And yet we were shaped to have the capacity to cooperate with strangers, which is astonishing actually and to befriend people who are not related to us, which is astonishing actually. And, and, and so these are the traits which I think are actually, we'll probably get to it, also morally good. Um, 
that uh, natural selection has equipped us with. So my point is, it's not so unnatural to me at all that we should call forth that people see each other as individuals. It's the most natural thing in the world. Uh, or that we should be able to befriend people without reference to their superficial traits. I mean, you know, to me, to me, and this is this is both an evolutionary argument and, as you're suggesting, a philosophical liberal principle argument. Because if we think that the most important thing about you is some superficial trait, then and that that defines your life experience and your positions about topics, why the hell are we talking to each other at all? I mean. Uh, this rejection of our common humanity by by the arguments you were alluding to, Helen, it strikes me as as not only wrong on the science, but also politically unwise. Um, and so anyway, I, I kind of share your sentiments in this regard. Mm. Yeah, and I certainly wouldn't um, wouldn't say that that we we don't have the um, ability to treat each other as individuals. I, I certainly agree that I, we do. This is what we do in our everyday lives. But I was I was very interested in in um, uh, Jonathan Haidt um, did uh, some. He, he wrote about the looking at people who um, sort of form the forming of groups that we um, we forget about each other's individual characteristics, um, I mean, our identity characteristics, when we have the same aims. Because I, I was looking at this in relation to Othello. Why did all these people accept Othello? It was because he shared their aims. And so Jonathan Haidt and um, some other evolutionary psychologists with a very, very long Polish, I think, name that I'm not even going to try and pronounce, uh, you, you might well probably know about him. Um, they did this sort of series of studies which showed that when we're in a group, racial categories don't last very long. We stop thinking of each other in terms of race, but we continue um, being aware of each other's sex. And that this, they were arguing, was because there hasn't been an evolutionary benefit for people to have um, reactions to people of a different colour, but it's been very useful to recognise if someone is of a different sex. So I don't know if, if that would, this whole sort of idea of individuals working within a group, getting status because they have knowledge, making individual friendships, but also having these shared aims does seem to be uh, an individual, a, a sort of individual um, well, stance. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I, I don't know the exact study you're alluding to, but I do know studies that have looked, for example, at, at the military and why the military has been so successful in the United States at, at reducing um, you know, racism. And one of the reasons is that, as they say, you know, in a foxhole, nobody cares what race you are. They just want to know, can you shoot straight? And you have a common enemy. And, you know, and I, in the book, I do review some of the literature on how shared aims, specifically how having a common enemy um, you know, can affect your in-group bias? And the answer is just as you suggest, that sharing an aim, uh, having a superordinate goal is very effective at breaking down us versus them distinctions. I incidentally think that one of the reasons we're having ascendant tribalism in the United States in the 2010s, um, and maybe even in Europe too, for that matter, is the fact that America won the Cold War. In other words, before we had, you know, Americans were united against the common enemy, you know, the Soviets. But that war was won, so we don't have this common enemy anymore. And I think that may be part of what's uh, you know, going into this kind of 
increasing divisiveness we find in the United States. Sorry, I was just a quick comment. I can't remember who it was who, who said that, uh, jokingly, but probably quite accurately, that the thing we really need to unite us all now is an alien invasion. Bring it yes. on. I can't wait for first right. contact with the Vulcans. <laughs> no, 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 we, we don't. We don't want that. It's very, I'm with the people who think that that an alien invasion is unlikely to be beneficent. Really? I think that any aliens who have the technology to manage to make it out here um, yes. fast, and, Would be fast enough, well, I think that they won't need to destroy us. Um, you know, aliens who have that kind of capacity will already... And that's how... Will, and that's how we that's how we treated Africa when we we didn't we didn't poach the animals to death when we went there right because we were so uh, well we were we had no need to poach them to death because you know we were so enlightened well that's oh, why do you think that aliens would not share the kind of social suite of friendship and cooperation well no I didn't say they wouldn't do that in fact there's an interesting argument in the book about convergent evolution which basically makes the argument that because, for example, the capacity to see has evolved independently more than 50 or 60 times, and even eyes, very we and, we and octopuses have eyes of very similar structure, so-called camera-type eyes, and the last common ancestor we had with an octopus is like 550 million years ago or something. Um, so we independently evolved these eyes. There's a very famous paleontologist by the name of Simon Conway Morris who argues that certain traits like seeing the light are inevitable. He thinks that consciousness is inevitable. In fact, he thinks that if you run the tape of evolution again, even on other planets, you'll wind up getting sentient, uh, you know, not necessarily bipedal, but, 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 but organisms that have appendages on the ground and also appendages that are not on the ground, uh, conscious, uh, et cetera, organisms, uh, and that live socially as well because, we, you know, social living has also evolved independently on our on our planet multiple times. So, so there, there's something advantageous about living socially, but, but that does not mean that a positive regard for uh, outside the species will endure. And I, you know, if you just look at the way we treat other species, even though we are by and large quite moral, um, you know, it's awful. Uh, you know, we have uh, hunted other species to extinction and your, your sort of idea that uh, inter, you know, that inter intergalactic, uh, space travelers that arrive on our planet would care about us is roughly like saying, you know, what would uh, what would a child that's been taken from America to the coast of Africa think about an anthill there? They would just stomp on it. Uh, and so if they needed to or wanted to. So, you know, I, I, I used to think in a very Star, Star Trek way that such aliens would be beneficent, but for whatever it's worth, and this is all speculation, of course, I'm increasingly not so confident. Uh, I, I mean, I tend to feel that um, their motivation, it's very unlikely that anyone is going to stumble upon us. And so the motivation for coming all this way out here has got to be exploratory. Yeah, but look what, but look what, but look what the, look what the European explorers did to the Inca. I mean, what makes you think that the European explorers with their superior technology. Oh, I'm not confident. I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing. I'm not confident at all. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, look, look what we did to the Maya and the Inca and the Aztec. I mean, you know, we slaughtered them or deliberately tried to put them down. And so, you know, I, you know, I think that it's, that's the more likely outcome. You know, I, I think an alien will be more like Cortez, 
uh, you know, than like, uh, I don't know, you pick Gandhi or something. So, um, so anyway, um, it's interesting to speculate about this. I do talk in the book a little bit about this issue, this, you know, this trope of alien invasion and a superordinate goal. And incidentally, as a tangent, I talk a little bit about what kinds of societies have science fiction writers and all of their creativity come up with for us to inhabit. Um, because that, that's another line of attack in understanding what's universal about us is to see uh, when we try to imagine something very strange, what do we leave out that any human would regard as, wait a minute, that's not what human beings are like, you know, leaving that out. Mm. I, yeah, I have several, I have several things to say. Um, I think one thing is that um, I am surprised that you are so pessimistic about aliens um, because. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm optimistic exactly. about humans. You got me onto because, the alien track. I'm very optimistic because, about humans. Um, you say that our evolutionary arc <laughs> bends towards goodness over the longer term. Yes. And, so if we yes. think of a species who are, true. in a sense, um, perhaps literally more evolved, i.e. having had a longer trajectory of existence, or are at least evolved to some very high degree of sentience and knowledge, which would need to be the case, I think, for this kind of scenario, unless we're talking about an H.G. Wellesy sort of war of the worlds in reverse, where some uh -huh. alien bacteria colonize the planet and wipe us out without uh -huh. meaning to. Um why would we not also expect that to lead to a greater kind of moral enlightenment? Okay, well, hold on. Let me, let me, uh, uh, I mean, this is all interesting to speculate on, but then let me cultivate another hypothetical for you. So imagine you adopt, for the sake of argument, a kind of progressive view of evolution, you know, which is scientifically not the case that, you know, we just are evolving blindly. We don't, there's no teleology to our evolution. Okay, so now sitting from our perch now, look back and think, okay, well, you know, over hundreds of millions of years, we started as these little microorganisms, and then we became multicellular organisms, sort of like jellyfish, let's say, and one thing led to another, and we had invertebrate life, you know, we, our ancestors were, you know, like, uh, like cockroaches, and, uh, and then eventually we had vertebrate life, you know, fishes, and, and then we eventually evolved to, you know, have human beings. And you look back and you and I ask you, what is the moral status or worth of jellyfish? You would probably think, well, I don't really care about the jellyfish. I'm a really sophisticated organism. And, uh, you know, they just played a role in the natural evolution of me. And the jellyfish has no special moral standing or um, claims on my affection, let's say. Now imagine for the sake of argument that which many people believe is possible that we will engineer a kind of artificial intelligence, a kind of, you know, this is a very common science fiction trope, a kind of ascendancy of the machines over hundreds of thousands of years. I don't think it's gonna happen over hundreds of years. Now imagine that those machines eventually become self-replicating and alive, have consciousness and very powerful and, um, and exterminate us for the sake of argument uh, or not, enslave us, let's say. Those machines, might look at us the way we look at jellyfish. They might think of us as like, you know, uh, a step in the all natural organic evolution of their ascendant um, reality. And, you know, uh, they, they would see us as having no special moral worth or any claims to their affection, just like we might look at the jellyfish 
I'm talking now over, you know, this is obviously rank speculation over hundreds or thousands or millions of years. So I, you know, again, I don't, even from this approach, I don't, while I'm phenomenally optimistic about our species and our capacity for well-being, and while the book is an extended discussion of um, the evolutionary origins of a good society um, and why we necessarily have evolved these wonderful qualities uh, in the social suite, I, I don't, I don't think I would extend those claims to, to alien life or you know over the kinds of horizons we're discussing. <laughs> I could, mm-hmm. I could, yeah, too far apart to empathize. I could say much more about this, but I don't want to, it to monopolize the discussion. And I know Helen <laughs> is not is not so interested. But talking of science fiction, that just uh, I think that I mean one of the really striking experiences I had, which very much very much ties in with your optimism about human nature is that I was I was watching the um, Star Trek original series episode the the mark of Gideon which is about a dystopian society in which their their planet has become so overcrowded that he says people would die or kill to be alone to have time alone and it's it's become a society of aggression and violence and despair and pandemonium and as I was, I was watching this on my iPad in a cafe in Bombay and looking at the scenes allegedly from Gilead. And I looked out of the window and the street in Calaba Causeway in Bombay, which I was looking out at from the cafe, was more crowded than the scenes in this dystopian sci-fi. And yet it's not, of course, there is a lot of, there is violence and crime and um um, many other problems in India, but it's not a dystopian nightmare. It's not a pandemonium. And it's actually quite a miracle that there are so many of us squashed in together and many people also who are living with extreme poverty and yet most people are respectful to each other and at worst neutral. At worst, it's they benignly ignore you, and that is that's quite miraculous. I think we underestimate that. Yeah, I mean, I I just was in Mumbai myself, like last month, because we do a lot of work with uh, the Tata conglomerate, which, as you know, are a nice Parsi family. And uh, yay, yay, and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's one of the you know major companies in the world, and uh, they actually support some of our work in Honduras, where we're doing some research on. On social networks, uh, the Tata, there's a collaboration, an alliance between Tata and Yale. Um, and so I was just, I go to Mumbai once a year. And I think you, on the one hand, you're right that we have evolved the capacity to, you know, why aren't we at each other's throats? Um, it's a good question. And we're not, even in Mumbai. But on the other hand, it is also the case that the inequality is staggering in these cities, um, mm-hmm. as you well yeah. know. And um, the poverty is, is extremely high. So on the one hand, I think it is noteworthy, as you say, that people can go about their business, rich or poor, and, and manifest benign neglect. Uh, and that is interesting that our species is able to do that. But at the other hand, I would also not want to say that point without also noting, as, as I know you would note, um, you know, the, the extreme inequality and, and poverty that also afflicts much of the world. On the other hand, you know, worldwide poverty is declining substantially. Um, and I think this is in common with Steven Pinker. I, I think, you know, 
I think there's this, this obsessive attention to how bad things are. You just need to look back a little bit to see how awful they were. I mean, let's not forget we had we had the Holocaust and nuclear bombs, uh, you know, 60 years ago. We, we, we've had, uh, you know, we had a hundred years war in many parts of the world. Uh, you know, the, 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 the improvements that we have seen because now of historical forces, as Steve Pinker has argued, because of the enlightenment, because of technological improvements are staggering. Uh, mm. the, you know, the number of people that have been brought out of abject poverty, the, the lengthening lifespans, the declining child mortality rate, um, all of these things are just extraordinary accomplishments, uh, I think, convincingly uh, a result of uh, kind of enlightenment values and uh, technological advances, all bred, actually, frankly, all starting from, from primarily from England, I would even say, uh, you know, in the 19th century. So, but my point is, is that we don't need to rely on historical forces to identify the causes and manners of a good life. We can uh, look at prehistorical forces too, because natural selection has also been working for 300,000 years or more in equipping us with the capacity to live together convivially. And we have this capacity and we manifest this capacity. We don't just need, you know, modern tools to do that. And so, you know, I look at these long sweeping forces that have shaped us for a good life quite independent of any more recent historical forces that may be militating in the same direction. Mm. That's That really seems to be, to me, to be the difference between Pinker's view, Pinker's approach and yours, or the difference between the implications of Pinker's approach and yours, which is that Pinker's, in, in Pinker's vision, it's historical change and his, history is contingent. So we could view it as a lucky chance that Enlightenment values arose and spread, etc. Whereas in your view, it's actually inevitable because it's hardwired into our species, this trajectory towards greater and greater friendship, cooperation, etc. Is that is that a fair summary? Yes. Yeah, I would say so. You're you're a greater optimist than Pinker, which is really saying something. <laughs> no, I know Steve. Per- <laughs> I know Steve personally. I don't. I think we're equally optimistic. We just for different reasons. It's like it's like two spouses agreeing to go to the same restaurant miraculously, each for their own reasons. One because they want Indian food, and one because it's just closer. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They still agree. <laughs> <laughs> on which restaurant to yeah. go to. I, I was reading an interview with uh, people from your lab, and I want to put this question to you because uh, one of your graduate students, I think, or postgraduate students, his name is Babak Futui, uh, made a comment yes. which you might want to respond to uh, here publicly. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, I read that interview. I'll just read this. He said, my picture of a successful human is not wealth or health. It's how meaningful their life is. We're living in an age in which if you ask people the meaning of life, they get depressed and we have opioid epidemics. If you measure in that sense, it's not enlightenment, it's endarkenment. It's not progress. I think it's degress. So it depends on how you measure things. How do you respond to that critique? Yeah, I'm going to be talking to Babak very soon. (laughs) 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 He's wonderful and brilliant. And of course, I see his point. In essence, what he's arguing is that, you know, sort of man does not live by bread alone, right? Mm. Uh, That we need meaning in our lives. And um, 
But I would argue that many of the ways that we find meaning are actually have to do with our relationships. So it is the case that natural selection has shaped us to think in certain ways, but it has also shaped us to interact in certain ways. For example, to love our partners, which is meaningful, and to befriend other individuals. And most people find their greatest joys at being with their friends, with other human beings that are simpatico. So I would, I would argue there's not as much difference that I, although there are forms of meaning that can be divorced from social interaction, uh, that's true. I would say most forms of meaning come from interaction. So for example, many people report that their most meaningful activity is to care for others, to give of themselves to others, that that's what their life has meaning. And, and this can also be incidentally just, for example, in producing knowledge. When you produce knowledge, when you find meaning in, in discovering something, or in, or in making a beautiful work of art, or in discovering or promulgating an idea, uh, you, you are doing that in principle, you, you can be doing it in part for your own personal consumption, but all of those things I just mentioned have to do with the, the, the production of those things for other people, right? The other people are gonna derive pleasure from what it is that you've done. So, so even those forms of meaning making relate to our intrinsic sociality. So I don't think there's as much of a difference between what Babak is saying, or in any case, I don't see an inconsistency with his argument and what I'm arguing. I, t- I, I tend to, to see what uh, Babak said there in very much um, the same way as, as the criticism of the postmodern condition, which came from people on both the left and the right, that we're moving away from meaning, that we've lost our meta-narratives, that mm-hmm. things are now so artificial and cynical that we've we've lost essentially what it is to be to be human we could even even look at it that way so i i don't see this as contradictory either i i think yes we can feel like that we can feel but a lot of what we are feeling is that we are getting out of touch with who we are and who we're with i think that i have two responses i guess to babak's critique and one is that if you don't have a certain threshold amount i think there is this there's this term which I think Darren Brown quotes in his book, Happy, which is, uh, I think he uses the term threshold satisficer, something like that, that although above a certain income level, just to take money, for example, above a certain income level, more money will not bring you more happiness. There is a minimal level that you have to reach before that is true. So if you're living in extreme abject poverty, then it's it's going it's going to be much harder for you to find happiness and meaning in your life without without changing that poverty situation so that eliminating or reducing poverty is going to lead to more people being able to find happiness and meaning in itself that's the first thing but the other thing i think where babak's critique maybe has more traction is that People like Cal Newport, I don't know if you're familiar with him, who's founded this digital minimalism movement, talks about us have we've evolved to be social, but it's to be face-to-face social, or if not face-to-face, yes. at least voice-to-voice. Yes. And it's become increasingly easy to do things that you used to have to do by calling people, speaking to them, going to see them, etc. You can now do through text alone, and it's very much less satisfying. And so you can yes. end up being in communication a lot, in a sense, you know, commenting on people's posts or 
or messaging them or whatever, but still have this kind of sense of isolation and loneliness. And that does seem to me to be a relatively modern phenomenon. Well, I talk about in the book that there's this whole, you know, Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft, you know, dilemma between, you know, a really authentic face-to-face community sort of Gesellschaft and a kind of anonymous product of modernity and bureaucracy, you know, when we interact with each other in our, in our capacities as, you know, officials, you know, like you are a, a doctor and I am a patient rather than, or you are a bureaucrat and I am a supplicant rather than, you know, we're each human beings who know each other and who, who relate as people. But this, this sense of anomie, this sense of disaffection with the bureaucracy and modernity actually goes back thousands of years. And in the book, I talk about the kind of communal communitarian movements that have been present for centuries, where people have been dissatisfied with what they perceive to be the inauthentic uh, interactions between um, that are a product of modernity. But now notice that the modernity could be Roman modernity or 19th century American modernity. So I think that while you are right that these these um, new tools that have us interact in these very inauthentic ways, not voice to voice or face to face, are problematic and are seen as awful uh, because it makes people realize how superficial, you know, they, they crave, we've evolved to crave real authenticity in our social interactions and we're not getting it. I, I would agree with what you said, but I, but I would disagree that it's the first time we face this challenge. Um, you know, I think this is a challenge that goes way back. So, Nicholas, what do you think are some of the most important lessons that one should draw from the research that has gone into, the, into your book? What are the most important takeaways of the book for you? Well, I would highlight a few points. I mean, you know, it, the book aspires to be a big book that, that integrates knowledge across many fields, you know, from history to philosophy to, to, to genetics to uh, sociology to anthropology to computational biology to medicine to, to political science to economics. It goes on and on. So it, it, archaeology, I mean, it tries to uh, ornithology. <laughs> it tries to integrate a lot of information to make an argument about how human beings are have evolved to be good. I, I would say a few things. I would say, first of all, one of the big lessons is that natural selection has played a role not only in shaping the structure and function of our bodies. Uh, everyone would grant that, that, you know, whether your risk of diabetes or how tall you are uh, is would be affected by your genes, but also that natural selection has, has affected the structure and function of our minds and therefore our behaviors. This also is no longer a really shocking claim, uh, but that actually natural selection has shaped not just the structure and function of our bodies, not just the structure and function of our minds, but the structure and function of our societies. And I think to the extent that we recognize that, we can see the extent to which we are prone to a kind of universal um, social order that, as it turns out, is fundamentally good. And the reason it's good, incidentally, is that these qualities about how we interact with each other it must be the case that the benefits of a connected life have outweighed the costs because otherwise we wouldn't live together at all. Like if every time you came near me, you killed me or filled me with lies or hurt me in some way, I would be better off living in a solitary fashion. So whatever the downside of living socially are, and there, and there are many, uh, the upsides must be greater than that. And, you know, and I show how that came to be and why that is the case. Um, but I think that the biggest takeaway is from my perspective, at least, quite apart from the specifics and the extended argument about how we've evolved to have good societies, 
full of love and cooperation and, and, and friendship and, and teaching and all these other wonderful qualities. I think the, uh, one of the biggest takeaways is, is just the whole pushing back against this notion that human beings are inveterately evil. I mean, for far too long, in my view, scientists have been over and, and the public has been overly focused on our propensity to violence and tribalism and hatred and selfishness. You know, but equally, we are prone to love and friendship and cooperation and, and teaching. And I think the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves and is actually fundamentally the more interesting part uh, of our human nature and, and the part upon which we can rely to, to build a, a saner and, and more peaceful and kinder world. Yeah, I, I recently cited you in um, saying this uh, because I was uh, responding to the um, an argument an argument between John Stedden, was it who's saying secular humanism is is a religion and we should um, and we need to um, to understand that uh, different kinds of societies can be uh, that need to embrace all ideas and I think this was there was this kind of suggestion that. Um, that's, that values make so much of a difference um, to society and we could actually opt out of having one. And I, I cited you on, on the fact that we're just not ever realistically going to do that. We're going to have this same, um, these same factors of society in every society that, that we form. And I saw this as, as an argument for, for making the most of a viewpoint diversity, but not of accepting that everything was equally right of working together and trying to make the best of who we are with the ideas that we've collected along the way. I mean, I, I, in the book, I talk, I agree with you. Uh, and I talk a little bit about this sort of extreme variant of social constructionism that claims that, you know, because it is the case that science is a human activity and therefore prone to human biases and errors and prejudices, therefore it's not possible to, um, to, um, to, to observe the word obje world objectively at all, which is rubbish. Um, the world the world is there, um, and we can appreciate it as best we can with our senses and our machines, and we do a better and better job as time goes by of, of appreciating the world. And I think science is the primary way in which we can, um, you know, resolve our differences about the status of the world. Alternatives include what you know, voting. We can have people vote on what the status of the world is. And, you know, then you get the cardinals allied against Galileo, right? 350 of them say, no, the earth is the center of the solar system. Well, that, that's wrong. You know, that doesn't make them right, <laughs> uh, the fact that they voted. Or you get might makes right, which we also know is false, right? The powerful deciding what the truth of the world is isn't the right strategy. And so I think science is the only way forward. And so even though... In its weak form, I endorse, endorse social construction. That is to say, I recognize that, you know, for example, the gender of the scientist will affect how it is they describe the world that they see. I don't think that actually means that we need to throw out the whole scientific project. And relatedly to what you said, I don't think, uh, uh, well, hold on, you, start, you didn't start with social constructionism. You started with, was it positivism? No. What was your first point, uh, uh, it, Ellen? I think, I think the uh, Staden was arguing for a religious epistemology. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think that a, a kind of secular humanism approach or a kind of approach that says this is the way to understand the world is a kind of religion. I I, I would reject that claim. Um, so you know, I think this is the critique of positivism, if I've understood what you've said, and uh, you know, I would reject that as well. So 
Um, so while there's wisdom in that, I mean, I, I also I do believe. I mean, there there is a critique of positivism which says that which says that it is it interested in only the least interesting parts of the natural world. Famous physicists have said this too. They've said, you know, you know, uh, they neglect the most interesting parts of the God's creation, as it were. Um, you know, I again, I I think there. I, my point is, I I see some wisdom in some of these critiques, but I think in their more extremes extreme forms, like everything else taken to an extreme, they become, you know, ridiculous caricatures of themselves. I was interested in, I think at one point you say in an interview, Nicholas, I think the same qualities that can lead to a lot of goodness in the way we live together can also lead to a lot of badness. And I was interested in where you see the trade-offs there. So do you think that some of the more negative universal characteristics you identify in the social suite, like in-group preference and preference for mild hierarchy, that those things which seem like negatives actually have a a positive aspect? Well, I think that, I think, uh, I mean, you know, I think again here I would like to invoke a principle similar to what Helen was suggesting and what the ancient Greeks suggested, which is, you know, everything in moderation, you know, nothing to excess. I mean, I think... Uh, I think extremes of any kind often are wrong, um, just as a heuristic about understanding the political world and maybe, maybe even the scientific world or the objective reality of the situation. So, um, you know, I, there is a way in which some of these qualities can be carried to an extreme. And I guess maybe an analogy to the peacock's feathers, you know, like the peacock starts with some attractive feathers and because of the inexorable workings of, so, of sexual selection, you know, eventually we get this extraordinary display, which is, you know, not very practical except for attracting the attention of peahens. And, um, you know, I, or you can think about how, you know, we're interested in sex, but then you get, you know, hardcore pornography uh, or we're interested in friendship. And, you know, then you get online social media. You know, these are all, all extreme expressions uh, of what otherwise might be, you know, reasonable qualities, you know, sex and friendship, for example. Um, so, so, you know, I think that there are ways in which some of our, you know, for example, the propensity to form mobs is a hyper expression of an otherwise desirable property, which is that sometimes it's useful for us to surrender our individual interests to collective interests. And that makes sense, you know, and that we have this capacity is not is good and not surprising. You know, we can think beyond ourselves, but when carried to an extreme, you know, you get, you know, you get witch burnings and, you know, mob action and kind of groupthink and all kinds of other, you know, woes that uh, afflict us. Um, so, so yes, I think that there is a sense in which we could go too far, but nevertheless, um, you know, as I argue, I'm extremely optimistic about our species. And I'm very taken with the fact that we have all these wonderful qualities that equip us with the capacity to to live together. And as I as I argue at the end of the book, you know, the the arc of our evolution is long, you know, but it bends towards goodness. Thank you both. It was so nice to meet you in person, you know, after after following you online and interacting with you. And I am so taken with both of your minds and your and your philosophies and your liberal commitments. And Greatly admire you both. So thank you for your kind attention. That's very kind. That, that, that feeling is definitely reciprocated. Thank you so much for joining me, Nicholas and Helen and everyone else. Have a wonderful week.
You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.